Welcome to the History Guy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to stories of lesser-known historical events told by Lance Geiger, also known as the History Guy on YouTube. I'm Josh, your host, a writer for the channel and eldest son of the History Guy. We tell all kinds of stories about history, from the modern era to the ancient past, so you never know what we're going to talk about next. One thing you can be sure of, it is history that deserves to be remembered. We at The History Guy are also excited to announce a new way to interact with the team and The History Guy himself at Locals.com. Join The History Guy Guild for your one-stop location to chat with other history fans, get updates on the team, and more. You can join for free or pay as little as $5 a month to get access to live chats with The History Guy, looks behind the scenes, early access to ad-free videos, and more. Find us at HistoryGuyGuild.Locals.com. We look forward to seeing you there. On today's episode, the History Guy tells the story of two foods, from their earliest origins to their contentious issues with government regulations. First is the story of sliced bread. Humans have baked bread for millennia, but automatically sliced bread is a relatively recent technology that nonetheless significantly altered society. Second, the History Guy talks about cranberries, specifically American cranberries, and what makes them unique up until one of the first great food scares of the 20th century. Without further ado, let me introduce the History Guy. There's archaeological evidence that people might have started to domesticate wheat as far back as 9600 BC, but the making of bread, which was originally made with wild grains, actually predates the domestication of wheat by thousands of years. And there's archaeological evidence that people might have been making at least some form of bread as far back as 14,000 BC. Bread was frankly central to the development of many important civilizations, and the humble loaf got a huge improvement in 1928 with the invention of the automatic bread slicer. But 78 years ago today, on January 18, 1943, U.S. homemakers suddenly found their beloved sliced bread absent from store shelves, leading many to argue that the worst thing to happen since sliced bread was the day the government banned sliced bread. It is history that deserves to be remembered. The earliest forms of bread would have been flat breads. Flour, water, and salt were rolled into a dough and baked. Flat breads, according to a March 2018 edition of the Journal of Ethnic Foods, fit well into the context of a subsistence economy and are among the earliest processed foods. Flat breads are so versatile, the journal notes, that they are still produced today. In fact, flat breads can be produced both in the same way as they were made thousands of years ago and in modern fully automatic industrial lines, allowing tradition to meet innovation. It's unclear when the first leavened, or bread that used yeast to rise bread, was invented, but yeast was being produced by breadmakers in Egypt by at least 300 BC. Early breads were made from a number of different types of grains. Bread in ancient Greece, for example, was most commonly made of barley. Loaves of bread could be purchased from baker shops in Greece as early as the 6th century BC, and bread was so central to the diet that the part of the meal aside from bread was a word that meant condiment, or bread's accompaniment. Bread was not only central to the medieval European diet, it was the primary way that meals were served, with meals up to the 15th century being served on a flat piece of bread called a trencher. As a diet staple, however, bread was occasionally caught up in world events. During the Great War, Britain faced bread shortages as they saw both a labor shortage due to the number of men going to war and the need to feed those troops, coupled with a German U-boat blockade that restricted imports. While the nation never actually rationed bread, it took a number of steps to address shortages in price, including regulating the use and extraction rates of various grains and mandating bread flour admixtures of barley, oats, rye, soya, or potato flour, resulting in a darker bread called war bread. The government supported voluntary rationing, leading to the somewhat questionable claim that Britain could defeat the U-boat by saving two thick slices of bread a day. Among the restrictions was a May 1917 ban on fresh bread that made it illegal to sell bread that was less than 12 hours old. While the so-called bread order had several rationales behind it, the most direct was the argument that people would eat less bread if they were forced to buy bread that was stale. In October 1917, a tailor named Louis Horowitz was sentenced to a substantial fine of 50 pounds, or 51 days in jail, for the horrible crime of purchasing new bread, although the Home Office decided that the penalty was too harsh and he was pardoned. Still, while commodities like meat and butter and cheese were all rationed during the war, the United Kingdom never officially rationed bread during the Great War. And it was between the wars that this ancient technology met the modern era. 
Otto Frederick Rohwetter was an Iowa-born inventor who, in 1916, was so convinced as to the economic potential of one of his inventions that he sold his chain of jewelry stores in order to finance its development. By 1917, he had both a working design and a factory in Monmouth, Illinois, ready to produce his marvelous new machine, only to have the machine and blueprints lost when the factory was destroyed in a fire. But by 1927, he had recovered and perfected his design for a new machine that would mechanically slice and then packaged to prevent from going stale a loaf of bread, enough to apply for a patent, which was finally granted in 1932. He sold its first machine to the Chillicothe Baking Company in Chillicothe, Missouri, which sold its first package July 7, 1928. Rowetter's son told a Chillicothe newspaper in 2003 interview that the product was so popular that the bakery increased its bread sales by 2,000% in just two weeks. The invention was well-timed, almost contemporary with the 1921 patent by Charles Streit of an electric toaster that toasted both sides of the bread simultaneously and would then eject the cooked toast, the first pop-up toaster. After thousands of years of slicing our own bread, people could now go to the store and buy pre-sliced bread, an innovation that was so convenient that the sales of bread skyrocketed along with the sales of spreads like jams and jellies and peanut butter. By 1933, sales of sliced bread exceeded sales of unsliced bread. No one ever seems to ask what was the greatest thing before sliced bread, but we know that today everybody competes to who has the claim to be the best thing since. But sliced bread was about to run into the largest war in human history. The U.S. government took on an unprecedented level of control over the economy during the Second World War. Among the agencies created was the War Production Board, which directed the conversion of industries from peacetime work to war needs, allocated scarce materials, established priorities in the distribution of materials and services, and prohibited non-essential production. And the Office of Price Administration, which had the power to set price ceilings and to ration scarce supplies of items, including tires, automobiles, shoes, nylons, sugar, gasoline, fuel oil, coffee, meats, and processed foods. A wide array of goods were rationed during the war, from gasoline to typewriters to lard. This was accompanied by numerous regulations. For example, if you wanted to buy a new tube of toothpaste, you had to turn the old tube in for recycling. On January 18, 1943, the long reach of regulating the war economy finally came for sliced bread. Claude R. Wickard, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, issued Food Distribution Order No. 1 in conjunction with a War Price Administration order allowing a 10% increase in the wholesale cost of flour. The order banned the sale of pre-sliced bread, as well as placing restrictions on the types of bread that bakers could bake. The Times Advocate of Escondido, California, explained, Bakers who deal in retail sales to consumers are allowed to bake only 15 varieties of bread, including rolls. Not more than three shall be white bread, and rolls will be limited to nine varieties. Three types of wheat bread may be baked. The regulation was promulgated quickly, leaving many surprised. The Chicago Tribune noted on January 19th that the government ban on the sale of sliced bread yesterday caught hundreds of Chicago housewives by surprise and sent them scurrying to hardware stores to raid depleted supplies of bread knives. While just a generation before had grown up without sliced bread, the loss of the product was sort of a crisis in 1943. The Lodi News Sentinel of Lodi, California noted the day the regulation became effective. Now, if we view this operation with a jaundiced eye, you will have to forgive us. Have you sliced a loaf of bread recently yourself? Have you a bread slicer in the home, for that matter? Do you think providing you that slicer that you can turn out slices the same degree of accuracy as they come from the baker? The answer probably is no, to all questions. The News Journal of Wilmington, Delaware proclaimed, No official questionnaire has ever been issued, but it is believed that the majority of American housewives are not proficient bread slicers. The Chicago Tribune described the scene. Bakery clerks reported that some of the housewives were resigned. Others, still uncomprehending, stalked out of stores to look further for cut bread, and a few flexed their cutting arms in a manner one proprietor described as trouble and plenty of it. By January 24th, the Cedar Rapids Gazette noted that instead of the regular half-inch sections which came from the bread wrapper, shapeless, odd-sized sections of bread found their way to dinner plates. Certainly the law had its detractors. The Times of San Mateo, California summarized the problems. Bread knives were hard to get. When you got them, it took time to learn how to use them, and after that it took more time to slice the bread daily. If the knives were too dull, they wouldn't cut, and if too sharp, they took a toll on fingertips. And the time lost and injuries resulting cost nation many a man or woman hour. And besides, no matter how you slice them, it seemed the hand-carved chunks still got caught in the toaster. A woman named Sue Forrester wrote in a letter to the editor in the January 26th edition of the New York Times. I should like to let you know how important sliced bread is to the morale and saneness of a household. 
My husband and four children are all in a rush during and after breakfast. Without ready sliced bread, I must do the slicing for toast. Two pieces for each one. That's ten. For their lunches, I must cut by hand at least twenty slices. For two sandwiches apiece. And afterwards, I make my own toast. Twenty-two slices of bread to be cut. In a hurry. The Chicago Tribune reported that both retail and wholesale bakers here described the ban as a doubtful saving of time and labor costs, a waste of bread, and a duration long lost of an investment in slicing machines. But the response was not universally negative. Much of the response represented the sort of stoic bravery with which the nation, and in fact the world, faced wartime necessity. Mrs. Doris H. Steele, a home demonstration agent, wrote in the Bari Times of Bari, Vermont, in Grandmother's Day, the loaf of bread had a regular place at the family table. Grandmother had an attractive board for the bread to stand on and a good sharp knife alongside. Grandmother knew that a sharp knife and a steady hand were the secrets of slicing bread. She sliced as the family asked for bread, and in this way she didn't waste any bread by cutting more than the family could eat. Let's all contribute to the war effort by slicing our own bread. The Miami News of Miami, Florida ran a story January 24th entitled, Miami Housewives Renew Art Almost Lost of Bread Slicing that described how many housewives were coping. Mrs. M. Helper, for example, said, I don't know what it's all about, but it doesn't bother me very much because I already have a nice, sharp bread knife. I guess we'll all get along as best we can. Well, Mrs. R.A. Oglesby responded, I haven't been buying any bread since the order to stop slicing it came out. I don't have a bread knife and I can't find one to buy. So I'm baking biscuits and buying rolls. Even the Lodi News Sentinel, after expressing how dubious they were and proclaiming we don't like the order, then framed it as being among 101 merchandising frills which we have taken for granted. They are all on the way out, because all of them mean extra work for someone, and that extra work could be better applied in wartime to doing something that helps win the war. Concluding, bring on the unsliced bread. We'll manhandle it the first few days. After a week or so, maybe we'll get some slices out of it. They won't be works of art, but they'll be bread. And the bread is the important thing, isn't it? And at least one person cheered the restriction. The St. Cloud Times of St. Cloud, Minnesota noted that actress Olivia de Havilland, who hadn't been reading the papers and didn't know that sliced bread was a war casualty, was delighted to hear it. She said firmly that steps should have been taken long ago because bread was always sliced too thick, and it was about time the government stepped in. Still, the law had its powerful critics. New York City Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, an ally of President Roosevelt and director of the Office of Civil Defense, argued in a radio address on January 24th that bakeries who already own bread-cutting machines should be allowed to use them. But the government did not relent. In fact, the New York Times reported on January 26th that the ban was going to be extended to local bakeries, delicatessens, and stores that continued to use their bread-slicing machines. John F. Conaboy, the New York area supervisor of the Food Distribution Administration, explained that the extension was necessary to protect regular bakers against unfair competition. The exact reasons for the ban were never clear, but several were suggested. First, the regulations were intended to provide savings and reduced overhead, which it was hoped would allow bakers to absorb the increased cost of bulk flour without raising the price of bread. A second reason had to do with saving war supplies. The government argument was that sliced bread had to be double wrapped with heavy wax paper since sliced bread dries out and goes stale more quickly. Thus the order saved both wax and paper. The order also might save critical war materials like steel needed to manufacture and repair the machines and the energy used to operate them. Some speculated that the order may also have been intended to reduce bread consumption on the reasoning that pre-sliced bread had increased consumption so eliminating it might result in a corresponding decrease. This could allow Secretary Wickard to avoid bread rationing, which would have been unpopular. Finally, some argued that eliminating slicing meant less waste, as whole loaves do not dry out as quickly and were less likely to mold in moist environments. And all the reasoning, frankly, failed. Many bakers argued that sales did decrease for a number of reasons, but the general idea is that the order caused more bread waste, not less. The Akron, Ohio Beacon observed waste resulting by consumers cutting slices either too thick, too thin, or discarding leftovers. The Chicago Tribune pointed out that sliced bread actually lasted longer because a housewife opens one end of the sliced bread, generally replaces the heel after taking out what she wants, and the bread stays fresh. To cut it herself, she removes the whole wrapper and the bread dries out more quickly. The beacon opined, it's a crime to waste food, especially during wartime. The Charlotte Observer noted that war production regulations already prohibited purchasing new bread cutting machines, so the savings in steel would only be the tiny amount that would be used in the repairs of existing machines. In fact, the order might have had the opposite effect. As the newspaper observed, the order has sent housewives scurrying into markets to buy new knives for slicing bread. 
Bakers had already argued that the order produced no real cost savings. The Chicago Tribune quoted a spokesman for a large wholesale bakery that said that time saving in the industry was negligible, and the Charlotte Observer estimated savings to be less than one-tenth of one cent on each loaf. The Harrisburg, Pennsylvania Telegraph reported February 17th, Above all, the bakers admit the purpose for which the bread slicing ban and other bakery regulations were instituted have been defeated and instead of affecting a saving, a cost to the bakers, have increased. That the ban was ill-considered from the start was most evident in the fact that it was lifted less than two months after taking effect. The Chicago, Illinois Suburbanite Economist wrote on March 10th, By permission of Secretary of Agriculture Wickard, sliced bread went back on sale yesterday. Mr. Worker said he had found there were more evils in stopping the slicing of bread by the bakers than in letting them go ahead and do it. Turns out there was no reason to save wax paper as bakers already had ample supplies on hand and wheat was also not an issue due to a bumper crop the year before. In fact, in the wake of the reversal, suddenly no one seemed willing to take responsibility for the ban to begin with. The Belvedere, Illinois Daily Republican proclaimed sliced bread ban bears earmarks of who done it. The Office of Price Administration put the baby on the Agriculture Department's doorstep. An Agriculture Department spokesman said it was really the baking industry's idea. The bakers, said a spokesman for the American Bakers Association, were much excited. For their part, War Production Board officials said that so many things have happened in the past two months that they couldn't remember who started the no-slicing idea. The Columbus, Indiana Republican reported that in Washington, none of the powerful war agencies wanted to take credit for the sliced bread ban order. It begins to appear that the little man who wasn't will ultimately get the credit. The OPA says, I didn't do it. The WPB answers similarly, and Secretary of Agriculture Wickard says he had no part in it. Indiana Representative Forrest Harness said in the Indianapolis Star, I blame the little bureaucrat in the Agriculture Department rather than Secretary Wickard for the silly order making an offense for the baker to sell sliced bread. Certainly forbidding sales of sliced bread wouldn't win the war. In the end, the story of the 1943 sliced bread ban was one of bureaucratic overzealousness. As Culinary Lore magazine noted in 2017, the ban on sliced bread probably was never given any real thought or analysis, and it didn't last very long. Despite the ban having its supporters at the time, the reversal less than two months later resulted in almost universal approval. The San Mateo, California Times proclaimed, Man cannot live by bread alone. He wants it sliced. Mrs. James P. McLaughlin was quoted in the Chicago Suburbanite. So now we have our ready sliced bread back, and everybody's just a little bit happier. Everybody, that is, except for the sparrows. And Miss Dorothy Merton said in the Detroit Free Press, I was plenty glad when the OPA decided to lift the ban on bread slicing, because I hadn't had a good piece of toast in weeks. And the best lesson, maybe, is that even in difficult times, we should appreciate what we have. Because no matter the challenges of the day, at least we still have sliced bread. Now's the part of the episode where we get to chat with the history guy. A little bit about what we just heard, what we're going to hear, and some behind-the-scenes stuff you only get to hear about on the podcast. We'd also like to welcome back Betty Jo, the history mom and my grandmother. So now we know, if anyone asks, just how long ago it was that sliced bread was invented. We do. We do. Yeah, that was... Uh... You know, that, uh, I used to joke on that, you know, everybody th says, what's the coolest thing since sliced bread? But, you know, what was the coolest thing before? But then everybody was noting that uh, the late Betty White, who just, just passed this last year, that she was actually born before the invention of sliced bread, so that she was the greatest thing. Sliced bread is the greatest thing since Betty White, is the way that they put it. But it's relatively, and that's an interesting kind of sub-theme in this video, is that how quickly the technology changed. I mean, it's, it's about, you know, the Second World War and, 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 and rationing and stuff like that. But I mean, one of the things that's startling in there is I said their grandmother, you know, lived without a bread slicer. And then all of a sudden, housewives could not figure out how to slice bread. I mean, we forgot how to slice bread over the course of that, uh, that single generation uh, because the machine was invented. And that, that's how, when someone asks, you know, what's the coolest thing since sliced bread, that's why sliced bread is yeah. so important that we literally forgot how to slice bread. I think it's really I mean, interesting, though, that you know that they had to have knives uh, for something else, and so they didn't use the turkey knife to slice the bread, apparently. Yeah, you need a different, apparently it's a different knife, yeah. And they didn't, uh, It's it, they, they weren't prepared enough so that they immediately ran out of knives at places like hardware stores because they hadn't prepared for the run on bread knives that would come. I don't know that I have a bread knife. I don't know that I have one either. That's, that would be specifically that. Oh, what's it look like? I'm pretty sure I do have a knife that is at least referred to as the bread knife. Now, whether it is a bread knife 
I don't know. I'm not exactly sure what differentiates them, but it does seem like they didn't warn anyone about, uh, you know, that you were suddenly not going to be able to have sliced bread. Yeah, I it figured was, that it would was be startling. Yeah. I mean, I think that maybe happened a lot with some of the uh, rationing, but I mean, this one was particularly unique and it really has to do too with that. I mean, that's the real part of the story. This is that, that we were so used to rationing. We were so used to sacrificing that something that really made no sense that no one could explain that in the end, no one would claim. I mean, no one would even claim responsibility for and they could just tuck through because they were just, you know, just used to saying that. And it was so I mean, who knew the amount of disruption that would come over over that particular you know, rule? And it, and it says a lot about the war. But I mean, part of it was bread is different than almost anything else. If you are rationing bread and milk, uh, then 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 you're in a truly a desperate situation. I mean, people figure those yeah. are things you need to survive. And so governments both in the UK and the US were desperate not to ration bread. Uh, and so these were just kind of weird ways to ration bread. You know, in the US, we said you can only make three kinds of rolls and two kinds of bread. And that was to try to move to other kinds of flours. But it was also simply to make bread something that consumers wanted less. And in the UK, they said you had to buy stale bread. I mean, it became a crime yeah. to buy bread that wasn't stale. So it's it's kind of funny that it went through uh, and we didn't even know what kind of a crisis it would be. But I mean, it was part of the, you know, just thinking that says that we don't want to ration bread. So how do we get consumers to self-ration bread? And apparently that was one way. I, I like the lady that said, I'll just buy rolls. But I, the other thing rolls. that it really, really uh, emphasizes is the fact that uh, any regulation, no matter how, how simple it seems or uh, or how harmless it seems, uh, can cause so many re repercussions. And it's it's the same that we see every day, every day in our lives. Uh, and is very is really something you have to realize is yes it does make a difference even if you just tell them you can't have a bread a bread slicer. Yeah, yeah. yeah that yeah it's yeah. Uh, and, and you know this one turned out not to make sense. I didn't mean for these two episodes to come out to be like anti-regulation because you got to have some sorts of regulations. But they are signs. You know, you, it's always a line you're trying to draw. And this would this was an interesting line. Even in the war when people were willing to sacrifice, this was just a meaningless sacrifice. But, you know, to their credit, I mean, it took them about a month to figure out that the blowback was bigger <laughs> was, was. than whatever savings they thought they might get. And then everybody's like, oh, it wasn't my idea. Was it your idea? They didn't even find someone to throw under the bus. They just drove the bus away. <laughs> yeah. It never happened. It really is, you know, for, for the number of things that people were willing to ration on and to make sacrifices for, uh, this was the line. That, that's what we found out is that the line was sliced bread. Yeah. People. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> the, the poor lady still... talking about how many pieces she needed just to make breakfast. And, you know, you're yeah. like, wow, you know. But I mean, why, and you yet... know, if, you, if you're going to ration bread, that's one thing. But I mean, the bread you come, you can't, you know, hasn't been sliced. I mean, it is, it was one that was always kind of difficult to understand. It's interesting because there were newspaper articles that were trying to justify it like any other of the regulations. And even they mm -hmm. were clearly struggling on whatever the reason was uh, because no one ever really wrote down a reason. Someone, you know, someone just jot, it's like someone jotted that down as a joke to see if it would get through. And it did, you know? Yeah. And well, and they couldn't find out who, because literally no one was willing to say, yeah, I'm the one who said you can't have sliced bread. Yeah. yeah even but more. I mean, they were all like, no, not me. It wasn't me. I had nothing. <laughs> not to, they ran away from that. Yeah. And it does, you know, it says something about what we need to appreciate in the modern world. For all the complaints that we had, and, you know, we're facing some shortages now, which the nation yeah. really hasn't seen since maybe the Second World War. But, I mean, coming in and having, you know, fewer choices of any person or whatever that's, that's up on the, uh, you know, in your shelves uh, is a lot different. I mean, we are so spoiled now. Uh, I mean, can you imagine for all the complaints that we had during COVID and et cetera, can you imagine if, you know, suddenly the bread wasn't sliced? I mean, yeah. how, how many of us could even beggly figure out how to turn a loaf of bread into, I, <laughs> into a sandwich? I have very rarely had to try to cut just a loaf of bread into sandwich slices. And it is, I can't cut a straight straight line through a slice of bread to save my life. I mean, I can't. It's hard even to when do. I'm cutting like banana bread, it's, it's, it's going to be shaped like a wedge, which is fine if I'm eating it like that. But with a sandwich and if you're trying to toast it, yeah. and that's that's not something I had really considered. But yeah, the, we really rely on the size yeah, of the bread. It's in astounding. Order to fit yeah, in the the toaster. toasters had just come out and was breaking the toasters because the bread wasn't the right size. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy to think about. I mean, for one of the lessons really that I, I've learned as the history guy is that we, if we think we have it bad now, someone's always had it worse. And I, I just I can't imagine the crisis. And, you know, during COVID, the, the people were baking bread at home more because they were stuck at home and they had a yeast shortage because suddenly, you know, yeah. people didn't they didn't realize everybody would start, you know, in the same way they're having toilet paper shortages and can shortages and whatever. So, I mean, it, there is a lot of kind of echoing of things that we've seen here, but it also goes back to that general idea that was. I mean, we're talking about a time when people are so used to sacrifice that they, you know, they fully accepted this, you know, really silly regulation that made no point at all. Uh, and, and certainly they were in, in you know, uh, we have lived through much worse than we than we live through today. 
uh, including, yeah. you know, going from the greatest things in sliced bread to not having sliced bread all of a sudden. I mean, it was uh, crazy. It is. It's incredible that in what, 15 years, 1928 is when they first start marketing sliced bread, 43 is when they ban it, mm-hmm. uh, that how completely people had come to rely on pre-sliced yeah, bread. Yeah. So that they were utterly right. unable, except for Olivia de Havilland. She was apparently yeah. perfectly that happy slicing her own bread. She wanted, she wanted She's like, they're too thick. Yeah. <laughs> it was really funny to pull out. So it's really, it's an interesting story. And it's uh, it's certainly a story about uh, how much we have to appreciate. Well, I mean, whatever's going on today, you can buy sliced bread at the store, right? Well, and one of the things yeah. that uh, are interesting in my business, because I own a magazine, is the fact that there's a shortage of paper. And if you look it up, you'll realize that the paper they use in magazines most of it comes from overseas, and yeah. so uh, uh, and mm. so basically, uh, who would ever think that uh, when when a printer calls me and says I'd like your business, my printer said, "Hey, be careful, be sure and ask if they have paper." If they have paper. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the important part is whether and it's it's interesting because you you don't necessarily expect the repercussions that there are, yeah. and I think you know even even more since you know since World War II the the global economy has become so tied up in so many. Different yeah, we're things. seeing that. You know, the baby formula shortage, the uh, children's Tylenol yeah. shortage that we've been hearing things about and things like that. Those are, uh, I mean, those are their, you know, the sliced bread of the day where we're, we're really startled to find out how one or two things that are very well-stocked supermarkets that yeah. we need to appreciate uh, that, you know, just one or two things not being there can truly, you know, impact people's lives. So I guess well, this is know, sort of a cautionary tale about that, too. Yeah. COVID was one of the first times, I mean, in my life. That I that you'd been walking into a store and really see, I mean, whole shelves empty uh, of of certain things, and it's interesting how 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 spoiled that really makes yeah. us. Because yeah, I mean, I, I've I've lived in a world where there was always plenty. I I always could have gone and gotten any number of these things. And to be fair, mostly I still could have gotten at least uh, something. Uh, I remember like our favorite brand of uh, Alfredo pasta sauce wasn't had somehow that became a victim of of the supply chain problems or something and yet i mean it's not like we couldn't get alfredo sauce we just couldn't get the one we liked the most and that's it's <laughs> that's an interesting that's an interesting way to think about it on how much it's changed um at a time when I, we were literally rationing what food you could get yeah. what sugar you could get and that and that rationing included you know just literally turning off the bread slicers yeah we might be seeing something uh you know that there's a factory in china that makes all the iphones that's going through all kinds of crazy stuff, which yeah. is directly because of Chinese COVID policies. And I, I wonder what that's going to be yeah, like. Yeah, I'll do iPhone uh, for you. There'll be an iPhone shortage. That'll be an iPhone shortage, right? And yet, I think when you think back on it, maybe, uh, maybe iPhones aren't the most important thing. And yet, I bet that'll be a problem for some people. Oh yeah, uh, it'll. There'll be way more demand. The vast bulk of my life was lived before the iPhone, and now, now I'll be like, I don't know what I'll do without an iPhone. I don't know what time it is. Yeah, exactly, right? And that's the we we've come to rely on stuff and to some extent, I mean that's that kind of looks like the bread too, right? Yeah. We, it wasn't that long ago that we were all living lives without without cell phones and constant connection to the internet. And now I sit here and think what on earth did people do in the 1980s? Yeah. What did they do with their day? How did we survive this? <laughs> you went to the mall. We don't have, we don't have them anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 a really it's funny to me to think about that because uh, gosh, if the internet goes out, I'm like, oh, that's okay. I've got data on my phone or whatever. Like, there's no way to keep me. It's very difficult to get us totally <laughs> disconnected these days. And that's I certainly. I mean, I I remember life with a cord of phone. I remember my uh, my first uh, uh, cell phone. I mean, it was I mean, a packet that you zipped open, uh, and, huh. and and uh, I used I used it for three minutes the first year that I owned it. I thought I I, I billed three minutes. Because you didn't want to, you want to use the thing. Yeah, you didn't want to use the. Yeah, now, my like, gosh, I don't know how many hours are spent on the phone. And, you know, where would where would we where would the history guy be? Where would the podcast be if people didn't have these ways yeah. to listen to it? So, but I mean, we uh, this is this is another good example of how well how good we have it, uh, because whatever our complaints, you know, we we still got we still got sliced bread, right? If they make me if they make me slice my own bread, that's my line. I refuse. Yeah. I'm I'm with I'm with everybody back in 1943. I'm going to be like, no, come on, come on. I'll just have like a just square chunk of bread and a and a can of tuna, and I'll just take a bite of each one at a time. No, no way, I'm making a sandwich. Well, or just I'm just with go the lady rolls. who just bought rolls. Yeah, <laughs> I can make a sandwich out of a roll. I can cut a roll in half. I can do that. It's it is it is truly incredible uh, how much how much it changed and how much. Uh, it says about the you know American society in terms of 
uh, not just not just how fast things can change, but where where our lines are and stuff like that. Where it is, yeah. And I think you saw it, very little rebellion in the Second World War. Yeah. To all there was some Union stuff and other, but I mean, you saw very little yeah. rebellion. But you saw a large housewives rebellion to the slice, you know, that the bread wasn't yeah. sliced. And it's it's interesting to see where the line was drawn. I mean, we can we yeah. can ration fuel, we can ration sugar, uh, uh, but uh, darn it, <laughs> well, we can't slice bread. our bread. And the interesting thing is that the women drew the line. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't hear you. You hear no men in there complaining. <laughs> no, <laughs> that does say something about the culture too. Because they didn't men, slice bread. Men didn't slice bread. That's true. That was that. Yeah, was that's, clearly, that's, we, we, we figured ones. out who in American society was responsible for slicing the bread. You know, when it's when they talked about uh, when they talked about things that could have done possibly to to help things. I'll admit that when you re, when you think about it long at all, you're like, yeah, I don't really understand what this could have saved exactly. Um, it. It doesn't seem like they thought they thought it through in, ter- yeah, in terms they thought of exactly. maybe wax paper. I mean, there was some yeah. argument or maybe there would be some parts involved in, in repairing. But when you got the bread slicer, it doesn't cost much to run it. It appeared yeah. that they actually had a good significant amount of, of wax paper. But the other thing that happened is that we did have bumper crops of wheat. Uh, and so yeah. that there wasn't a bread shortage. So it might honestly have been something. As, I mean, you know, when, when the UK said that you can only buy stale bread. I mean, the point with that was that you know, that they were trying not to ration bread by making bread less desirable. Yeah. So the original thinking might be that if we had a poor wheat yield, what we really needed to do was to get people less interested in eating bread. And maybe, you know, that faded when it looked like we were going to have plenty of bread and plenty of wheat. Yeah. Ultimately, this one, it came out and they couldn't even come up with particularly defensible reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When, when they started getting complaints, everybody's like, OK, who's in charge of justifying this one? And everybody, like, I don't know. I thought you did it. That that one just went on through. We didn't even really realize it was in the it was in the paper, um, but yeah, that's it's because they weren't saving much on steel or anything like that. They had already banned buying new machines, mm-hmm. which uh, which would would have thought because that's like the compromise. You're like, oh well, maybe they could have just said, oh, I can't buy new machines. But if you've already got a bread cutter, now they'd already done that. That wasn't even part of the part of the conversation. Yeah, and then when Figueroa um, said, oh, it obviously doesn't apply to delis that are making sandwiches, and then the government says, oh, sure it does, and so now you can't buy a sandwich. <laughs> all of a sudden they have to they have to slice the sandwich at the deli with a with a knife rather than cut it with a yeah it was uh, you can see why you know people just started crossing their eyes and you can see why that could be such a threat because once you step across the line then people start to question the other rationing as well yeah you know that that, that could have been bad but i mean then you know the it's another story too about how the nation pulled together during the war in a way that's uh, it's almost hard to imagine now i mean <coughs> can you imagine if we really started rationing anything now even during covid if we really started actually like rationing like you had to have ration coupons uh, how uh, with all the controversy that we had over everything else in covid how, how controversial that would have been yeah it does seem hard to imagine that we could go back to that and i don't know i mean maybe uh, you know if it comes to a situation where we have to we i think we tend to surprise ourselves but it it's well, uh, we, at least we we'll definitely... know that we, we've managed before our, our yeah. grandmothers did it our great-grandmothers did it we can do it Magellan TV is sponsoring this episode, and they sponsor all of our podcasts. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know that what we like to do is talk about what we've been watching on Magellan TV lately. And so what have you been watching on Magellan TV? Mom's here. That's who you're in the background, obviously. So we we were just clicking through. And so we we chose a documentary called Dollywood or Bust. Uh, And I have to say, honestly, that I've never been to Dollywood, and I I don't quite get Dollywood. Honestly, this this is the craziest documentary I've ever seen on Magellan, because it was a British documentarian who clearly had no understanding whatsoever of what they were doing there in the Smoky Mountains. (laughs) He didn't have any idea who Dolly Parton was. His only understanding of her was that she had a big chest, which is interesting because they won't emphasize that at Dollywood because it's a family park. And so he didn't quite understand why people were going there. So it it was not just fun because it really does tell the story of this amusement park and why the people are there and the people that love it. But it also was certainly a study in cross-cultural studies right i mean in that boy he uh he's he didn't think highly of the u.s and that came through but on the end you know when they handed him the turkey leg he, he, he ate it oh i've been to dollywood <laughs> uh, my husband and i went my late husband and i were there we were amused because uh when we paid the fee for the parking t- ticket, thought this is really expensive, and then we realized that was only for parking, uh, and then we had to, <laughs> we had a door to get in. We thoroughly enjoyed it. They have uh, a little bit of everything, including one of the things he was really confused about was that there's a chapel there, and that a hmm. lot of people go in and spend a half hour uh, in listening to uh, to church music and uh, and to prayers and that type of thing. But seriously, what it's done in that area in Pigeon Ford and on Gatlinburg and so forth is absolutely astonishing because it's just changed that entire area. But, but no, I highly recommend Dollywood. It <laughs> is just fun. And the Englishman, he liked the food 
and he certainly uh, and he certainly seemed to enjoy the dancers. But uh, he was totally confused of why anybody would think that that was you know. And and I suppose it doesn't fit the the English idea of entertainment. You know, if you want to shock a European friend who's trying to understand American culture, I think Dollywood is a great place to do it. I think that that can leave people just cross-eyed. You know, and it just reminds me of all the crazy stuff. I mean, you can see anything on Magellan TV, and this is this is not typically what you would pull out because it was kind of a tongue-in-cheek documentary, but actually yeah. it was it just shows how awesome Magellan TV is and it was it was a really it was a fun watch. I tell you what, it, I learned more about Dollywood than I knew about Do- <laughs> I think people who've been to Dollywood will learn things about Dollywood. I did too. Yeah, in this, in this, So what you've been watching on Magellan TV. Uh, me and my wife watched a nature documentary and it's called Canute and His Friends. And it tells the story of three different uh, bear families, essentially. Uh, Canute is the main one and he's a baby polar bear born in Berlin. He was the first cub born in Berlin uh, in the Berlin Zoo for like in like 30 years. And so he was a big deal. Uh, but his mom abandoned him. And so this, this zookeeper has to raise Canute. Uh, I tell you what, baby polar bears are cute. Baby polar bears are cute. That's you know, I love. I mean, Magellan TV. You get a lot of great nature documentaries, and yeah, baby polar bears are cute. Yeah, it was. This was mostly cute. Uh, It is, of course, it's a nature documentary. There, it uh, pulls at your heartstrings because it tells the story of two other families of bears too that are uh, out in the wild and they they have struggles and think bad things happen to animals sometimes. So, but it was very. It was really quite heartwarming too to see uh, you know how these animals and you get attached to them and how their little lives go on and they've all got names and of course you you start rooting for them when they're having problems and stuff so it's it really it's a very very enjoy enjoyable documentary and it's again it's called Canute and his friends it's a great example of the you know the breadth of kind of stuff that you can watch on Magellan is that you can go from watching from uh, watching Dollywood, Dollywood or Bu- Dollywood or bus that's what it was called which I'm sure the pun was intended uh, and, uh, and to Canute and friends yeah yeah, that's it just shows the breadth of what you can do. I mean, I love Magellan yeah. TV. There's always something fun to watch on Magellan TV. And of course, if you are a listener or watcher of the History Guy, you can always go to try.magellantv.com slash historyguy, where we will always have a deal for you. Sometimes a free month or a deal on an annual membership or even a documentary that you can watch for free. Again, that's try.magellantv.com slash historyguy. Next up, the History Guy tells the story of the Great Cranberry Scare. And stay tuned after the episode to hear us chat a little more with the History Guy. The history of U.S. regulation of domestically produced food and pharmaceuticals goes back to the end of the 19th century, and a pioneering researcher named Harvey Washington Wiley, who was the chief chemist of the Department of Agriculture's Division of Chemistry. And from those early beginnings, a regulatory environment developed in fits and starts over time as consumers and government and industry tried to develop the best way to protect the nation's food supply. And one of the first great tests of that regulatory environment came in 1959, when a new regulation ran into a venerable product and resulted in what has been described as the nation's first great food scare. The Great Cranberry Scare of 1959 changed the way Americans looked at their food, trusted their government, and consumed their cranberries. It's history that deserves to be remembered. Born in 1844, Harvey Wiley was a Civil War veteran who had degrees in both medicine and chemistry. He was offered the post of Chief Chemist for the Department of Agriculture in 1882, largely because of his expertise in the chemistry of sugar, as the department was interested in growing a U.S. sugar industry based on sorghum. In the position, Wiley started conducting research into the adulteration and misbranding of food and drugs on the American market, including so-called poison squad studies, where the effects of a diet consisting in part of the various preservatives were tested on human volunteers. The studies and subsequent publications moved the public, including a campaign where a million U.S. women wrote the White House and spurred Congress to pass the landmark Consumer Protection Act called the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, also called the Wiley Act. For his contributions, Wiley was popularly called the father of the Pure Food and Drugs Act. While the act gave the Division of Chemistry some regulatory power, its ability to enforce regulation was constantly challenged, and the ever-present wrangling between industry and regulation led to a 1927 reorganization of the Division of Chemistry into the Food, Drug, and Insecticide Organization, which then, in 1930, was renamed the Food and Drug Administration, or FDA. A growing consumer movement, pressured by muckraking journalists and events such as the tragic mass poisoning caused by the untested pharmaceutical elixir sulfonylamide that killed 100 people in 1937, 
pressed Congress to give the FDA significantly more robust powers with the 1938 Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. The act has been amended many times and today is the center of the Food and Drug Administrations, which today has nearly 15,000 employees and a budget in excess of $5 billion regulatory power. One of the amendments to the act was driven by James Delaney, a U.S. congressman from New York, who chaired a select committee to conduct an investigation and study of the use of chemicals, pesticides, and insecticides in and with respect to food products. The results of his findings resulted in the 1958 Food Additives Amendment to the Food, Drugs, and Cosmetic Act that was commonly called the Delaney Clause. It read, The Secretary of the Food and Drug Administration shall not approve for use in food any chemical additive found to induce cancer in man or after tests found to induce cancer in animals. The reasoning behind the strict nature of the Delaney Clause was stated by influential researcher Dr. Wilhelm Huper, who testified before Congress. I do not believe that one can establish a safe dose of carcinogens, he said. I do not think that we have the method or evidence available by which we can reliably determine a safe dose. The legislation was undoubtedly well intended, but it would lead to some thorny questions as we have found out that essentially pretty much anything can give a rat cancer if you give it to them in a large enough dose. And one of the first tests of the amendment had to do with the berry from a dwarf evergreen shrub called Vaccinium macrocarpin otherwise known as the North American Cranberry. Cranberries are naturally hard, sour, and bitter. The name is likely derived from craneberry and is because part of the flower of the shrub resembles the neck, head, and bill of a crane. There are many cranberry varieties in Europe where the name was derived. But the North American berries were introduced to colonists by Narragansett peoples who had harvested wild berries at least from the 16th century, perhaps much farther back. The berries were often ground with dried meats into pemmican, a highly nutritious preserved food that was a significant part of Native American cuisine. The berries were also used for red dyes and due to their astringent qualities in medical poultices. Despite the sour taste, they were recognized fairly early for their nutritional value, with a 1672 book noting they are excellent against the scurvy, a quality derived from their high vitamin C content. The same text noted their sour taste and said that they were generally boiled down with sugar to make a sauce for meat that is a delicate sauce, especially with roasted mutton. To understand how cranberries fit in with the Delaney Clause, you have to understand the unique nature of the fruit. Cranberries grow on trailing vines like a strawberry, but the vines thrive on a special combination of soils and water properties found in wetlands. Cranberries grow in beds layered with sand, peat, and gravel that are commonly called bogs. The bogs were originally formed by receding glaciers, which carved impermeable kettle holes lined with clay. The clay lining prevented materials from leaching into the groundwater, and as the glaciers melted, rocks and organic materials were deposited on top of the clay, creating the ideal environment for cranberries, which require acid peat soil, an adequate fresh water supply, and a growing season that extends from April to November. Wild cranberries of Massachusetts, for example, flower in June and July and are ready to pick by September. North American cranberries were being exported to Europe by the 17th century, and recipes for preserving the berries, as well as making sauces, tarts, and pies, were common in the 18th century in both American and English cookbooks. Still, because of their unique nature, cranberries were still being collected wild, not cultivated. It wasn't until the early 1800s that Henry Hall, a veteran of the Revolutionary War who lived in Dennis, Massachusetts, started to cultivate the berries. Hall noticed that sand blown in from nearby dunes helped vines grow faster. By adding sand in appropriate quantities, per acre yields of berries increased. Modern growers still spread an inch or two of sand on their bogs every three years. As the berries grow on vines, the vines do not need to be regularly replanted, and some Massachusetts vines are reputed to be over 150 years old and still producing fruit. Hall's innovations allowed greater production, and a commercial industry grew that, combined with a greater availability of granulated sugar, allowed the fruit to grow in popularity. As it did, it grew in association with the holiday season. The berries were bright, shiny, and red, making excellent decorations. They were harvested and available in winter, and as they are slow to spoil, lasted well through the Christmas season. The season was also known for feasts of roasted meat, which went well with cranberry sauce. Cranberries became so popular that after the Civil War, successful efforts to grow cranberries in New Jersey led to what has been described as a cranberry fever, a rush of investment to grow cranberries that was largely a bust, as the plants are finicky and the people hoping to get rich quick had little understanding of how to actually grow them. 
cultivation methods slowly developed, including less time-intensive methods of harvesting. This was largely the result of careful study of growing factors and methods, and the finicky nature of the plant meant that the industry developed growers' organizations early on, which worked not just to help develop growing methods, but to collectively market the product. The success of a century of effort really showed in 1959 when the industry had already become a $50 million a year business. And 1959 looked to be a bumper record crop, 125 million pounds. Growers were expecting to make record profits, and likely they would have. Except for the Delaney Clause. The problem was an herbicide called aminotriazole. A chlorophyll inhibitor, aminotriazole, was used by cranberry growers starting in the 1950s to eliminate sedges, rushes, horsetails, and deep-rooted grasses from the bogs, clearing the water for the cranberries. Growers were instructed to use the chemical only after the harvest so as to keep it off the finished fruit, but trace amounts could still exist in extremely small quantities. Manufacturers petitioned the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to allow small amounts of residue, up to one part per million if necessary. But the FDA rejected the petition. There was a problem. New research had suggested that large long-term doses of the chemical suppressed thyroid function in rats, encouraging tumors, possibly cancerous, to form. That made aminotriazole a carcinogen, and while the study suggested that a rat would have to eat a vast quantity of contaminated cranberries over its entire lifespan to increase its risk for cancer, the Delaney Clause said that carcinogens were not acceptable in any amount. When trace amounts of the chemical were found in a part of the cranberry crop just 17 days before Thanksgiving, the reaction by the FDA resulted in the Great Cranberry Scare of 1959. The chemical was found in a few shipments of berries from Washington and Oregon, states which produced a tiny fraction of the annual crop. But strictly reading the new Delaney Clause, and in an abundance of caution, the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, Arthur Fleming, moved to limit the sale of berries from Washington and Oregon until the industry could develop a plan to separate out the contaminated berries. But the true damage came when a reporter asked the Secretary whether a housewife should buy cranberries for her family. Fleming answered, that if a housewife wasn't sure of the origin of the product, then, to be on the safe side, she doesn't buy. Suddenly, cranberries were not safe, contaminated with the terrifying-sounding aminotriazole. Despite the fact that only a tiny portion of the crop had tested positive for the chemical, grocery stores pulled cranberries off of shelves, restaurants dropped them from their menus, and some communities banned their sale. Life magazine published a list of alternative dishes, including spiced crab apples, frosted grapes, currant jelly, and beach plum preserve. John Deckus, a cranberry grower from Massachusetts, said on National Public Radio, We had 40 trailer loads of cranberries canceled within one hour after that announcement. My reaction at the time was, Oh my God, it's over. Ocean Spray, a cranberry grower cooperative, tried to limit the damage. The executive vice president sent a telegram to Fleming. We demand that you take immediate steps to rectify the incalculable damages caused by your ill-formed and ill-advised press statements yesterday. There were efforts by politicians as well. Richard Nixon, then Vice President and campaigning for President, ate four helpings of cranberries on November 12th. That made the headline of the Washington Post the next day. He stood proudly for the berry, saying, I, like other Americans, expect to eat traditional cranberries with my family on Thanksgiving Day. Not to be outdone, the Democratic nominee, Senator John Kennedy, conspicuously drank two glasses of cranberry juice the next day. The Post then noted, bipartisan cranberry consumption. Unconfirmed reports said Kennedy quipping, if we both pass away, I feel I shall have performed a great public service by taking the vice president with me. This was the first great modern foods care in the nation. It was a time of more powerful media, of a more educated public, of more distrust of corporate motives. People were bombarded with contradictory science and breathless news reports. The FDA tried to limit the damage, creating a testing and labeling program to clear berries before Thanksgiving. But the death blow came Thanksgiving Day, when the First Lady, Mamie Eisenhower, served applesauce instead. The AP headline read, No Cranberries for President. The season was a disaster. The cranberry industry reported $20 million in losses in January. Ocean Spray announced it had laid off a third of its workforce. Sales were 70% below normal for Thanksgiving and 50% below normal for Christmas. The industry needed some $10 million in subsidies just to survive the season. It was also unnecessary. In the end, more than 99% of the crop was found to be uncontaminated, and the few batches that were were in minute amounts. 
Not one person is known to have been harmed by the berries. There's really a mixed legacy for the Great Cranberry Scare of 1959. It did give rise to some consumer advocacy that achieved some important reforms, but also, according to Dr. Elizabeth Whalen of the American Council of Science and Health, the 1959 Cranberry Scare set the stage for decades of completely unnecessary anxiety about trace amounts of agricultural chemicals and additives in food. The cranberry sales rebounded the following year, but the industry learned a valuable lesson. One of the reasons that the scare had been so devastating is that the product was almost exclusively consumed in the short period of the holidays, which made it extremely vulnerable to disruption. Cranberry juice was produced and sold at the time, but it was really actually formulated for the taste of growers, not the general public, and it wasn't marketed by the industry. But with the help of the government and as a result of the cranberry scare, the industry started to create products like cranberry juice cocktails and dried cranberries that make cranberries popular year-round and therefore less vulnerable to disruption. And over time, the industry actually grew. The cranberry crop today is some seven times what it was in 1959. The industry stopped using aminotriazole altogether, but it's still used in non-agricultural settings, like clearing grasses from highway medians. Over time, the zero-tolerance policy for carcinogens became unsustainable. Partly because of the cranberry scare, testing methods improved, and as New Yorker magazine noted, in the years that followed the cranberry scare, dozens and then hundreds of chemicals would prove carcinogenic in humans or animals. Testing sensitivity increased a million-fold. Strict application of the law, one researcher noted, undermined the ability of the food and agricultural industries to produce almost any foodstuff that was free of some degree of contamination. More flexible methods of assessing toxicity were needed, and the Delaney Clause was finally fully repealed in 1992, but definitive answers still elude us. Consumers are still caught between advocates and industries, still faced with conflicting science, and still confronted with what seems to be ever more common food scares. You know, we talked a little bit when we were talking about the sliced bread about this, you know, this huge control over the economy uh, and how much regulation there was and how much we allowed. But in some ways, I mean, there's a lot of regulation and in some ways more regulation today than there oh, was yeah. in the in the 40s. Yeah. And this really shows us, you know, some some of the ways that we've gone back and forth in terms of how how much yeah that's is i mean good. that's really the story of the video on the cranberries is that right at the beginning i mean we weren't really doing food regulation before that i mean there yeah. was some there was like slaughterhouse regulation and some other things but i mean when we first came to this idea that you know does the food need to be pure do we go but uh but when you, when you went from buy everywhere to you know to government protection is how do you draw those lines and so this is this yeah. is a good example of that because it's a fair question what is an acceptable amount of carcinogen well, and I think yeah. it, uh, basically even more so, what it brings out is, is the science of how, how science has advanced because they, they uh, all of a sudden you can test and you can test and test. I'm in the animal health business. Uh, they, I was told many, many years ago by one of my friends, a veterinarian, he said, you watch. And he said, eventually they're going to have to change a lot of the regulations and laws because they can test down to the nano, nano, nano now. And, and there are a number of things, even in nature, that uh, that are harmful in large amounts or at a particular place, but you have to draw a line on uh, yeah. on what is actually damaging. Uh, on nature puts out you know poison mushrooms, all kinds of things too. You have to be you have to be realistic about the fact that there there is a line there, just like there was on the sliced bread that we talked about. There's yeah. a place that you go over, and you have to be so careful about the regulations that you make because you can eliminate things that are very necessary to the world mm -hmm. or very are very good in the world uh, just because you now I can tell that they they might 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 have something in them that's harmful yeah, and, I, and this yeah. is an example of something that's that still occurs today and that was the food scare that's really what it was yeah uh, which was so interesting we had a very small percentage of the crop that was uh, contaminated with a very small amount of this uh, of this chemical uh, and, you know, to be fair, this chemical, the industry doesn't use this chemical anymore, so it is a dangerous chemical. But be because of that, because the, the Secretary of Agriculture said, well, if you don't know where it's from, you don't buy the cranberries, then all of a sudden all of the crop and everything was – and it nearly killed the entire industry overnight. It hit it right at the time, uh, you know, when that was their that was their big sale for the year. And, that you know, that's, that's – farming lives on the edge. You know, you, you have to – you depend upon selling that crop. And uh, it, so uh, the, just uh, ill timing on it. Uh, and a scare that caused a reaction that was much larger than than the the real threat uh, nearly meant that you know you wouldn't buy cranberries today that the whole cranberry industry might have collapsed. So it's really fascinating to kind of hear how those pieces go together. And it does show 
that when we think about anything, including government regulation, then you have to think through all the consequences. And it is true with sliced bread, and it's true with the, the cranberry scare as well. And very definitely yeah. about, uh, say, I'm in the cattle business and think about BSE. Uh, you have a few old cows that are showing a disease, very, very few, shows up in England, and all of a sudden the entire beef business is under, under really, really strict uh, guidelines type thing. Uh, finally now, uh, what is it, 15 years later, uh, I see that they have dropped all the rules again because basically, and uh, and no one was ever really sure that that is really where the uh, where the disease was coming from. Uh, uh, food hmm. scares, for those of us, uh, I'll have to be honest, in my business, uh, if something happens to us, then you just hope the turkey people did something really dumber. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, your competitor. That's cranberry people hoping you know crossing their fingers that the orange people sprayed something even worse than them so the people are stuck it's interesting that one of the things that they said was stewed crab apples i don't know whatever happened yeah. to the crab apple industry but i think it would be hard to stew as crab apple these days i think it would be I, difficult to find a crab apple to stew yeah yeah can you buy crab apples i, mean, I have I, no idea I, if I, if you went like I, in the store for stewed crab apples, I think they'd be hard to come by. So so cranberries came out of it's actually interesting because at the time cranberries were only really seen at Thanksgiving and Christmas, and they were actually yeah. more Christmas than Thanksgiving at the time. Uh, and now they've moved to cranberry juice and juice cocktail and those and those dried cranberries so that they have a kind of a year round. And that whole story of cranberries is interesting there too. I mean because that yeah. was that was a totally really an American thing. They're very different in Europe. Uh, and then figuring out how to grow them because they have to grow in a bog. And, and, you know, they had these periods where they were, you know, they were so popular. They tried to grow them places where they didn't have bogs and couldn't figure out how to grow them. There's, there's some really interesting stories in that, uh, in that whole episode. Yeah. It's really kind of a fascinating episode because it's more than you ever knew about, about cranberries. Yeah. But it's, it's, well, uh, we're lucky to have them today. They were almost killed by that, yeah. that one scare. I have to tell this story because it was really funny. Uh, one of our relatives had, uh, older relatives had gone out for Thanksgiving dinner said that she couldn't tell what she ate because she didn't have her glasses. And I said, well, how about uh, about the taste? And she said, no, but she said, I really like that red stuff. Well, you know what the red stuff was, uh, but she wanted her cranberry in a jelly. She wasn't coming out of so a can. So she liked the can. She didn't like fresh cranberries. But it's funny that it's the only thing she could recognize out of Thanksgiving dinner was the cranberries because all she could see was red. <laughs> that was and a great take. You tell that by the color. That was a great take on Thanksgiving dinner. I asked her if she had enough. She said, I must add enough, but don't ask me what I ate because I forgot my glasses. Yeah, it's an interesting, you, you mentioned, you know, with the, the Delaney Clause, that conceptually, you understand that they're like, we don't want carcinogens in our food. Like, that 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 makes sense. Well, we, <laughs> had, yet, just, we had just figured out what they were. Yeah, but you, you're right that you, you end up having to tr- toe this line of what is, uh, you know, what is safe and what is ridiculous. And to that, that that's a hard line. To, it's it's a hard line to toe sometimes. Yeah. And I think we found we found this time that uh, it wasn't actually that hard. We were way over the line. Uh, the cranberries, hardly any of them had anything in them. And it was really a marketing a marketing thing for cranberry. It was just the cranberries. It was a disaster. Yeah. But I, I think it's it's funny, you know, that the presidents, the, the presidential campaign folks, Nixon and Kennedy are both like, oh, well, we're going to. We're gonna eat and drink cranberries. Cranberries. <laughs> Kennedy said if, he, if it killed him, then it, you know he would have done this, the country a favor by killing Nixon. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's <laughs> there's some funny. I mean, there's some almost just it's it's weird enough that there's. I mean, there's almost just an ironic twist. There's kind of almost yeah. an underlying humor about what happened. But I mean, it certainly was terrifying to people. I mean, they were holding cranberry festivals and they had a Miss Cranberry yeah. and all this sort of thing. And, and suddenly their whole you know the whole industry. I mean, the guy you work all year to bring in your crop and he had 40 truckloads that were canceled in an hour. And he thought, you know, this, yeah. this whole business that we've had forever is gone. So it's really got that that underlying scare there, too. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, I today we can measure to much greater amounts. We can yeah. measure much better to see what's in there. Uh, but when you first identify carcinogens, you can see why the answer, you know, what you know, what's a safe amount? Well, nothing's a safe amount. And so we'll cut out anything. And then it finds out that we got into the ability where we can measure them that I mean, that everything you wouldn't eat anything because everything's got some amount of something that, you know, if you, yeah. you feed it to a rat, it's going to give the rat cancer. I don't know how many of those rats survive. That's the. I don't think they're supposed Apparently, to. Yeah, they're, they must all get cancer. That's, I mean, that's one of the things that they've also kind of found is that virtually everything, you know, yeah. has some sort of carcinogen. So it's really, it's, it's an, it's, it's a, it's a story about the beginning of the industry of trying, or the, the government trying to regulate food and trying to understand that. That's interesting. It's a, it's a story about the history of cranberries. It's a story even about the presidential yeah. election. But it's, it's uh, also, it's a story about how. You know, again, a small decision, a regulatory decision, can have a an outsized impact if you don't really, you know, see the, the consequence down the line. It's it's all. I mean, I think we all agree that you know, 
we we don't we want to be able to know that the food we're eating is safe. I mean, that's we go to restaurants. We want to expect that they're in the in the back where they're cooking stuff. They're not you know, using rotten foods and stuff like that. Um, and and that's you know regardless of regulation, we want to be able to expect that. And we we've done a couple of episodes that are similar in ways that you know the, the ketchup history of ketchup and, yeah. the, and the olive poisoning, olive poisoning both talk about ways that were where you know there was some importance there's some importance to regulating this stuff and uh, why and why we do th- things the way we do but it's it's also interesting that you know we we end up facing this line that man if you have essentially one time to like oh no there's something that might cause cancer in large amounts uh that ruins an entire year of cranberries that that that, that could be enough to literally wipe out cranberry as a as a essentially as, a, as an industry but, I mean, but it's crazy. also interesting at the time because some people saw this as abuse of government saw some of this abuse of yeah. industry there were some uh political cartoons that showed the government being the heavy hand and some political cartoons that showed big cranberry who knew there was big cranberry but big cranberry you know was was roasting the uh the, the, the department of agriculture for making a bad choice so i mean i think there were people on both sides and there still are today and and uh, so yeah. I, I i don't know that we've answered all the questions that really the camp, cranberry scare raises because still, anybody in the industry is probably going to disagree with anybody in the regulatory environment about what's a safe amount. And people are going to be on both sides of it out in the world. But uh. Well, and it's, it's a fair question because, of course, you know, whatever the safe amounts are, that's if, if we're talking that that means, you know, the industry has to change activities or add or take away something. I mean, that's a lot of cost for them. And so you understand why they have they have. And I, I don't think I think in general, the industry doesn't want to kill people. I, yeah, I, yeah, no, that's bad for business. There. Yeah, I mean, I don't think yeah. either anybody wants to. Uh, and you know, regulators—they don't want to be the ones that didn't regulate something that needed yes. to be regulated. That's a, that's a bigger yes. crime than regulating something else. Uh, you know, but on the other hand, you also don't want to be the guy that says, "Well, you know, we don't know, so don't buy." And this is the only time we sell in the year, and it costs—you know—it costs the industry billions of dollars. Well, and it, it's, it's just uh, there's so much science involved, and it's one of those things that you that you need to trust the science and and know that it's done right. And that is another issue that we see. Very, very often nowadays, too. Yeah, but well, I, I guess science. I had no idea that, you know, there's these fields in, like, Massachusetts where, I mean, they, at, at, at the at, right time of year, everybody in town would roll out and help pick the cranberries. I had no idea that's how it worked. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, that's not, I hadn't thought much about cranberries. Um, they're a little too tart for me in general, but I, I like cranberry sauce at, at Thanksgiving, and I drink some cranberry juice and stuff like that. But it's, it is interesting. But, but, of course, as you mentioned, it's kind of interesting to think that a lot of the ways we eat cranberries today, we might owe that in an indirect way yeah, to, the, to, the, scare, to yeah. the scare because because the government was trying to support the industry after the uh, after they had nearly destroyed it over what was ultimately clearly a scare that was uh, yeah i mean i think this one said it was unnecessary that that, that the panic yeah. was was utterly unnecessary and that this stuff actually wasn't dangerous but i mean it, it's hard to say too because the industry no yeah. longer uses this chemical it's used like on highway yeah. medians but i mean the industry won't use it at all so, but I mean, but they knew its risk too, because they would use it after the crop had come in. So you're putting it in in the fall and you know, you weren't going to pick it up a crop until the next year. Uh, and so they knew that it was a risk, but I mean, it was, these were very, very tiny amounts. So I think in the end they say, no, no one, if they, if they just not said a word that no one would have gotten sick out of these yeah. cranberries. But. but it's difficult because, you know, with, with say the olives, uh, people were, people, people died when they ate, they yeah. ate those olives. And that's a, you never know where, where your stuff that was unregulated killed people. I mean, then is it worth it to be, you know, so do you want to, you know, how do you want to air? Oh, they're interesting questions. But I, and again, we lived through the great cranberry scare. We'll, we'll live through it again. Yep. Well, well, we live through quite a few scares these days and you wonder sometimes, I mean, you know, they're how sensitive they are to, to various uh, concerns about whether it's contaminated or not. I can, I mean, that's, that's a problem. I, these days, I think we usually, I, Salmonella and E. coli are usually the scares that we, we see today, but it's, it's similar stuff that, you know, you don't want to, you don't want E. coli, of course, getting out, but you don't want to destroy uh, large amounts of product that is, uh, you know, perfectly safe to eat. And it, I, I'll admit that whenever I see, they're like, oh, don't romaine lettuce might have E. coli. And they'll tell you, you know, what states or whatever that it came from. I'm like, I don't, when I'm walking into a store, I don't know where they got that romaine lettuce. And so I, my choice is usually just to avoid romaine lettuce. But I mean, and that's I, I one see... of the changes though today is that, I mean, they'll be able to tell you what field it came from. Yeah, Whereas, yeah, I mean, yeah. when, when the cranberry scare happened, it, it was very difficult for them to segregate out which part of the crop had come from that part. I mean, now, I mean, because we've got ability to track some things like barcodes, which we actually did an episode on and things like that, give us the yeah. ability to track 
in a way that makes it less likely that uh, you know a mistake or a contamination in one spot is going to cause the whole you know you know industry to collapse. Uh, and especially you know vulnerable would be something like cranberries who you know they're this huge at the time I mean probably roughly ninety percent of their business was based on that yeah. one time a year and that's when the sales went. Uh, and uh, so I, it was, it, they were particularly vulnerable, but also we've just, we've, we've certainly become better able so that if that were to happen today, we would be better able to identify which lots caused it and, you know, where those had gone and get those out of the food supply without affecting the entire cranberry crop. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and to get the, the dangerous stuff off of store shelves, it's, it's, it is an interesting, and it's always going to be that push and pull between, you know, safety and regulation and what the industry wants, what people want, what the government wants. It's all, they're all, it's just a lot of competing interests. It is. And ultimately, we've seen that in lots of places. We've saw, we saw yeah. that in, uh, there, in uh, airline regulation too, on the, on the, on the Piper, on the, the, the King's Lynn uh, landing and stuff like that. And, yep. and, you know, those, when you, when you mess up, either way, it can be a big mistake. You know, when the industry convinces the regulator that says, oh, we don't really have to do a recall. Uh, sometimes that leads to bad things. And so, you know, it's good that we have a push and pull. It's good that we see it from both ends. But I don't know that we'll ever find the perfect line. Uh, and that's that's just life. So it wasn't intentional that these two videos uh, were both about overregulation. It wasn't intentional to suggest that we shouldn't be regulating. It was They were simply both to show foibles of what can happen. And use common sense no matter what you do. And good stories. Yeah. Yeah. Good stories yeah. to tell. Yeah. I mean, I think I think ultimately, you know, the history of regulation is is um, is complex, and that's why we that's why we have to look at it the way we do. It's hard it's hard for us to, and it's only gotten more complex. I mean, it's it's very hard to know these days, you know, where the stuff you're you're eating, at, you know, if you walk into a grocery store, it's hard to know where all that food came from. It can, it could have come from very far away, and it, it's there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. And so I understand our needs for you know governmental regulation, but I also understand. Uh, the difficulties of making that happen, and also, you know, and making sure that I can afford to buy my lettuce, because uh, if you're those regulations are going to add costs somewhere along the line. I mean, that's 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 the, the, those are all those various things that we're talking about. And I think, hopefully, you know, when we talk about this, we we look at how hard a job it is to make sure that we have access to the safe food that we do have access to and to make sure that it's can going to be of good quality and and make it to all the places it needs to get to and truly it's incredible it is incredible the world we live in uh in especially in you know the united states how much access we have to stuff uh and how safe it is uh usually you can count on to be very grateful for yeah no we can get yeah. uh the fact i could buy raspberries all year round uh no yeah. matter where they come from uh, in my day, uh, you uh, you had leaf lettuce uh, in the spring. You were so excited you couldn't stand it. Uh, and uh, and the day that I realized that they were actually selling it in the fall, I'm going, oh my goodness, look at this. And so no, no. Uh, and that's one of the other things we have to look at. Transportation and communication makes yeah. all the difference in the world. Yeah, it's incredible. I I uh, somebody just got me a watermelon for my birthday because I like watermelon, and it's it's yeah. November. <laughs> in Wyoming, I, I don't know how good a watermelon it's going to be, but tell you what, the the simple fact that in Wyoming you can even find a watermelon in yeah, November, it's, you know, is, it's, there's less and less food that's truly seasonal. You can get avocado yeah. year round now. You can get, I mean, stuff that yeah. we when I was a kid you couldn't get year round. You, you really did worry about seasonal food, and now you can get almost any you know, fruit or vegetable almost any time of the year, and that is yeah. that is astounding. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's an incredible thing that we can do, and that's all just thanks to our our modern systems. And I tell you what, you can uh, you can count on them a lot. But as we saw with you know in these episodes with a little regulation or with COVID, something steps in, man, the the repercussions, the way they ripple out, sometimes unexpected, and that's that's how we end up where we are. But like you said in the last episode, I mean, I think what we what we take from this is we've been through worse. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Guy podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Forgotten History, and if you did, you can find more on our website, thehistoryguy.com. We release podcasts every two weeks, so stick around if you want to hear more podcasts of Forgotten History. You can also find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Patreon. You can even get a personalized message from the History Guy himself on Cameo.